chapter 5 of Acts. Is this another tithe message? Or is it about lying within the church? Um, about, a, I guess, September, October around that area in our uh, elders meeting, I shared with David and Clayton that I wanted to preach on this passage. Um, and then um, him leaving with uh, Tracy and them going to see family, uh, he asked me to preach today, and this was the passage I was going to preach on. And you think, why Ananias and Sapphira to start off with? And just, just hear me out. Uh, this is not about Ananias and Sapphira. This is not about Gamaliel. This is not about Peter. This is about the church and the church glorifying Christ through life, basically. Um, in the passages that I've selected before, whether it's been Mephibosheth or Moses not being able to enter into the promised land, I had issues with these passages, and uh, I used to struggle with them. Uh, I contended that God was not fair, and this was something that I just buried deep with inside me, not sharing with them, not even sharing it with my wife, because, uh, I mean, wow, you're a Christian, you, you know, God's not fair, how dare you? Uh, but these are struggles. This is, this, these are doubts that I used to have until my journey through Reformed theology. And me going through what I've gone through in the last four or five years, whether it's the lameness of Mephibosheth, whether it's Moses not entering into the promised land, uh, I didn't really focus on the sovereignty of God. I mean, the way chapter 5 opens up is, but a man, Ananias. I mean, they lied, right? I mean, what lie? Who in here has not lied before? I mean, men, husbands, I mean, all I have to say is, do I look okay in this outfit? Uh, ladies, well, yes, that belch was impressive, honey. We, no matter how minuscule the lie is, we think, it's still a lie. But death, really? Death. How God handled that situation. Like I said, until I read and studied it with the understanding of the sovereignty and the holiness of God. So now I come to Acts chapter 5 with an awe and wonder of how majestic God is and how wonderful His church truly is. You see, the church in Acts chapter 5 is honoring and exemplifying Christ because God took a bunch of lost, sinful people and he saved them. Then by the working of the Holy Spirit, he conformed them into his image of the, of the image of his son, and now they do life together. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? What is the church? Well, Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, defines the church as this. The community of all true believers for all time. This definition understands the church to be made of all those who are truly saved. Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25. Here the term, the church, is used to apply to all those whom Christ died to redeem. All those who are saved by the death of Christ. But that must include all true believers for all time. 
both believers of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. So great is God's plan for the church that he exalted Christ to a position of highest authority for the sake of the church. He has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So it's important to understand how important the church is to Christ. We are his bride, saints. Sometimes we say that without really thinking of the weight of that statement. We are his bride. Christ is our bridegroom. We are saved for him and him alone. So when we quickly move through this chapter, chapter 5, we'll see how Christ loved his church how Christ loves his church. And we'll see how his church loves him. Our passage this morning, we will see three characteristics that are exemplified. Think of it as just skipping a rock and it hits the water three times. We're going to see accountability. We're going to see distinction. And we're going to see persecution. All for the glory of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. First, accountability. <clears throat> to get context, we need to read the end of chapter 4, starting with verse 32, because like I said, chapter 5 starts with, but a man named Ananias. And so we know that word but means that there was a lot of stuff happened before that that we need to take care of. So starting with or verse 32 of chapter 4, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds and, that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now Luke records that the church was of one heart and soul, and they individually gave their possessions to the church. This was done voluntary. This was not communism. This was done out of love for the body. It wasn't a command. It wasn't a rule. The church body was aware of the members that were in need, and they gave out a love for the whole body. Now, Barnabas, yes, the same Barnabas that stuck his neck out for Paul when no one else believed about his conversion. The same Barnabas that left and split with Paul or from Paul when they got into a big argument over Mark. That same Barnabas. <clears throat> He took and sold his land that he had and gave the money to the apostles for the church. Now, the way this leads into chapter 5 seems to show that Barnabas received favor from the body. 
Uh, it wasn't looked for. It wasn't sought after by Barnabas. But because of what he did, people recognized that within the body and showed him favor. Uh, they didn't praise him for anything, but he would just, wow, that's awesome, okay, type thing. And so, again, he did not do it to gain favor, but he gave it because he saw the need. He was, he was just he was being part of the body. He was being used by God. Now, chapter 5 of Acts picks up on the same theme, introducing a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, who also sold a piece of property in order to give money to the apostles. Yet, Ananias and Sapphira were different from those Christians described in chapter 4. Instead of turning all the proceeds over to the apostles, they kept some back and only gave a part. Verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 and 4, Peter clearly teaches that Ananias' problem was not that he only gave a part of the proceeds. As Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was not that at your disposal? Peter affirms that Ananias had every right to decide what is the wisest to do with his money. It was Ananias' choice. Ananias' problem is that he and his wife had lied about the fact that they are keeping back part of the money for themselves. Why Ananias decided to lie about this is not stated. And we can only imagine that it could have been a number of things. Why someone that might have tempted to behave as Ananias did, he may have simply just loved money and refused to part with it all. Uh, while simultaneously wishing to appear more godly by claiming that he gave away all of the money. Uh, he may have simply just had a bad habit of lying throughout his life, and he may have just wanted and, and saw the favor that Barnabas saw and thought, you know, I may, I, I, I'd like to have some of that too. But he wasn't willing to give everything up that he sold to receive that. Whatever the case may be, Ananias' sin is a graphic reminder of our need to speak the truth diligently and without fail. Peter's condemnation reminds us of how serious the sin of lying truly is, particularly when it comes to our Christian faith. The apostles asked Ananias why Satan filled his heart in verse 3 and condemned him for lying not to men, but to God in verse 4. We can draw two important applications just from this short part of the story. First, Christians must be people of truth. Jesus taught that Satan is a liar and the father of lies in John 8, 44, and that is why Peter told Ananias that Satan had filled his heart. When we speak falsehoods, half-truths, or even shaded truths, we do not reflect the glory of the one who is the truth, John 14, 6. We instead reflect the image of Satan. The second thing off of this is that Christians must never value either money or personal reputation above holiness. Ananias claimed to be given away all that he had earned from the sale of his field. He valued his reputation and his money more than the truth. He desired the praise of others while maintaining a certain amount in his own bank account. 
We cannot set our hopes on such things, saints. We must instead lay our treasures up in heaven, valuing what is eternal and not wanting what is just going to pass away. The praises of others is a lifeless thing. Disappearing as soon as it rises. Money is, is also temporary. It's always fleeting. It's sand in the hands. If we set our hopes on those things, we will find out at best that we will sorely be disappointed. Or that at worst, like Ananias, we walk a very dangerous path of hypocrisy. Luke describes the aftermath of Ananias' deception in uh, uh, verse 5 of chapter 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. God killed Ananias for that sin. As you might imagine, the early church reacted instantly and dramatically to this event. Great fear came upon all who heard it. Accountability. The most severe way. Peter judged. How dare he? I mean, doesn't Peter know the scripture? Don't judge lest you be judged? We have such a hard time with being judged, don't we? No, I take that back. We have a hard time of being judged negatively. What do I mean? Christy, I hear on Wednesday nights and Thursday mornings how you moderate your Bible study that you are doing. It's such a blessing to these ladies that attend. Thank you. I just judged her. I don't see her getting angry. Embarrassed, maybe, but not angry. Again, it was positive, but it was still a judgment. So we have a problem only with the negative judgments. And judging one another, church, is a responsibility of the whole church, just not the eldership. We are to hold each other accountable and to judge one another. Turn to 1 Corinthians for me. Chapter 5, starting with verse 13, or verse 11, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 5, 11. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth because, to put it mildly, they had issues with family relationships. There was a lot of bad things going on, a lot of sin that was within the body, and uh, Paul addressed it. But he says here in verse 11, he says, But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an adulterer, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person among you. So if someone tells you, only God is my judge, only God can judge me, and they claim to be a Christian, might well let them know they're not stating as such. Because it is our responsibility to hold each other accountable. 
Hebrews 10, 22 through 25 says this. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Accountability is stirring one another, encouraging one another. Accountability is loving one another. Going back to Acts 5, we look at the next characteristic, <clears throat> starting with verse 12, distinction. God had not allowed lying and hypocrisy to grow within his church. And now his church continued to grow in the city. Acts chapter 5 verse 12 takes us back to a very familiar setting, Solomon's portico. This location is where Peter and John went to preach the gospel after healing the lame man at the beautiful gate. Apparently, this is a site continued to be very important to the Christian church after, after that time. Indeed, it seems that Solomon's portico was ground zero for public ministry among the early Christians. In Acts 3, Peter had preached the gospel in the portico, and here signs and wonders were taking place among the people gathered there with the apostles. Verse 13 indicates a very interesting dynamic in regard to these crowds. Evidently, the publicity about the arrest of Peter and John and the news of Ananias and Sapphira scared many people away from associating with the apostles. The apostles, the early Christians, and others interested in the gospel were gathered in Solomon's portico but now there's a sense of this political tension in the air. Even though people held him in quote-unquote high esteem, they feared their own leaders, the Jewish leaders. So they dared not to associate with the Christians. There was this separation. Whether the reason was fear of the events that led up to this point, I mean Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead in the church, I'd be scared. I'd be wondering. Or whether it was the tension with the religious leaders, we're not for certain, but one thing is for sure. There was a separation of the distinction and or distinction from the body and those on the outside. Churches today believe to be relevant to the lost that they must look and act like the lost to make them feel comfortable. They add things to their order of worship that is evil and sacrilegious. But God's word tells us how to be relevant to the lost world. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 17. It says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Saints, we are to be separate or distinct from the world. We are to be holy. That is how you are to be relevant. You'll be asked questions. Why are you so different? Why are you so goody-goody? Why are you so like prim and proper, like things like that bother you? Why? With the love of Christ, you get to share with them why. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 18. But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That verse actually brings us to the third characteristic. Persecution. Suffering. Acts 5.17 tells or begins the story of the increasing opposition of the gospel. In verse 17, the high priest and his associates, the Sadducees, rise up in indignation and jealousy against the apostles. At this point, it is important to remember that the Sadducees represented a very liberal sect of Judaism. They accepted only the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law. Nothing else is Scripture. They did not believe in angels, supernatural gifts. They didn't believe in the resurrection, eternal life, or heaven or hell. But not only were the Sadducees theologically compromised, they were also, also politically corrupt. As they collaborated with the pagan Rome... They secretly agreed with Rome that the temple and the rest of the Jewish territory was really under Roman control. But they went along with the charade that the Jewish authorities maintained control. So when the Sadducees saw the apostles gathering such a large following, particularly one that was centered on the temple, the Sadducees knew that this threatened their political commitment. Furthermore, the attention garnered by the apostles were diverting the attention they felt that should be given to them. This then explains the source of their envy, their jealousy. That envy then led to action as the Sadducees publicly laid hands on the apostles and imprisoned them, verse 18. God, however, was extraordinarily merciful to the apostles. 
In the very next verse, Luke tells us that the, an angel of the Lord opened the cell doors and freed the apostles. <laughs> the irony of this story is very thick. The Sadducees did not believe in angels, yet the Lord sent an angel and freed the apostles who they imprisoned. This angel also gave some very specific instructions to the apostles on their deliverance. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This command is quite astounding. The apostles were in prison for having preached the gospel. As the angel delivers them, we might expect that he would instruct them to kind of lay low for a little bit and wait for the authorities to lose some of their fervor against the gospel. Just chill out, relax. But the angel instructs the apostles to go right back to the task of preaching and evangelism. We often value our safety and security more than the gospel or the Great Commission. But here we find a beautiful picture of God's provision in the midst of the apostles' faithfulness. God is commanding them to continue on the very activity that got them arrested in the first place. Yet, at the same time, God is showing his love and care for the apostles by freeing them from prison and demonstrating that he will provide for their needs as they do his will. Verse 21 indicates that the apostles understood the ser seriousness and the urgency of their call because we can surmise that the angel freed them from the cell shortly before daybreak. And thus, before doing anything else, the apostles went to the temple and began teaching the gospel message again. Since it was early in the day, word had not yet circulated about the release of the apostles from prison. In fact, the following verse narrates the somewhat comical story of Israel's leaders coming to learn that the apostles were no longer in their cell. Luke says that the council came together by the apostles. The council most likely referred to the Sanhedrin. Now, that was the body that ruled over Israel. The fact that the Sanhedrin was involved, did not, uh, and not just the Sadducees or the high priest, shows that the apostles were no longer just a threat to the temple or the religious authority but they were also seen as a threat to national security. When the council was ready to commence the trial, orders were sent to the prison to bring the apostles for the hearing. But what a shock there it had to have been in the prison as soon as the guards went to the cell and looked to find everything in order, apart from one very important detail. No prisoners. The condition of the cell was all as it should have been. And the only problem, they were gone. Now, this was really bad news for the guards because losing a prisoner meant that your life would have to be forfeited. So in fear and embarrassment, I assumed that the officers had to come back to the council and report the absence of the apostles. And that was in verse 23. Now, such news, Luke records, greatly perplexed the chief priests. Puzzlement and anxiety rippled through the council. Finally, someone reported that the apostles were back in the temple preaching and teaching. 
the captain of the temple guard, along with some officers, went to seize the apostles, presumably intended to do so by force. However, because they feared the crowd, they arrested the apostles without violence and brought them before the council for a trial peacefully. Of this whole entirety is full of, uh, 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 situation is full of irony. The apostles are released by an angel whom the Sadducees, the ones who put them in prison, denied even existed. The political class, who liked to be known for their wisdom and knowledge, had no idea what happened to the apostles. And the leaders of the people are so frightened by those people that they feared of being stoned if they injured the apostles in any way. The ironies of the story are evidence of God's sovereign hand at work. The passage shows us that nothing can befall God's people if He does not ordain it. God can turn the greatest powers of this world into bumbling idiots who fear the very people that they rule. God can send angels to open prison doors to ensure that His gospel continues to be proclaimed. God's plans cannot be stopped, and the events of His kingdom cannot be thwarted, and his people must not be silenced. Verse 27 brings us to the beginning of the apostles' trial before the Sanhedrin. The high priest scolds the apostles for continuing to teaching and, quote, this name. That is the name of Jesus. The high priest's indictment of the apostles actually says quite a bit about their faithfulness to the Great Commission. They had filled Jerusalem with their teaching. This tells us that their message was just not confined to Solomon's portico or the temple. It had become a major public topic throughout the city. Further, the chief priests charged the apostles for trying to bring Jesus' blood upon them. This is a real core of the issue. The high priest remembered that Peter had made it abundantly clear in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, and in 4.10, that Jesus Christ was a man attested to to by God whom the Jews had crucified, but whom had God raised from the dead. The responsibility for his blood was on the Jewish leader's hands. This name of Jesus then presented a serious problem for the Jewish leadership. This was the name that the chief priest feared. And it explains their efforts to avoid and to try to prevent its promotion. In verse 29, the apostles answer the high priest's charge with one of the most important statements in the New Testament. Quote, we must obey God rather than man. Not only is this verse immensely important for the Christian life, but it also helps us understand our relationship to the government within the biblical worldview. The Bible consistently teaches us that government has a rightful authority given by God Himself. Matthew twenty-two fifteen through twenty-two, and Romans thirteen one through seven. Thus, all humans, especially Christians, are to submit to the authority of the government. Yet, governments themselves are not God. 
And so they can overreach their authority at times and make demands that go beyond the authority invested in them by the one who is God. For instance, no government has the right to compel someone's conscience to believe one idea over another. A government that forbids the worship of the one true and living God is one which at that point does not deserve and cannot receive our submission. The apostles were not political revolutionaries. Their aims were spiritual, not material. They did not try to Christianize the government. Yes, they ultimately served another kingdom, but as Jesus taught, his kingdom was not of this world. John 18, 36. Verse 29 shows that the apostles understood the government's authority in their life, but they also recognized that the government was not to be given ultimate and complete loyalty. When an order from the government demands that we compromise the gospel, Christians must respectfully disobey human authority and remain faithful to God. In short, we must obey God rather than man. Peter once again sees the opportunity in verses 30 and 31 to preach the gospel in the midst of this. The high priest and his associates claim to represent God as his spokesman to the people, but Peter declared that they were the very ones who had killed God's own son, that he was the prince and savior through whom came the forgiveness of sin. That's in verse 31. Peter goes on even further in verse 32, and indicates that the apostles were the ones that, were, that truly obeyed God, which was attested to by the fact that God had given His Spirit to them. We should take note of the apostles' example of faithfulness in this passage. In the face of danger and in opposition, they did not negotiate or compromise with the high priest for the sake of their own personal comfort or even their lives. Rather, the apostles realized that there was a massive chasm between themselves and the religion of Judaism. It was represented by the high priest and the Sanhedrin. The New Testament makes clear that if someone rejects the Son, they reject the Father. There is no common ground between those who reject Jesus and those who are submitted themselves to the resurrected Christ. By God's grace, we may follow the apostles' example in standing firm upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as we declare salvation throughout the world. Whatever the cost. In verse 33, Luke indicates that the Sanhedrin was enraged with the apostles and wanted to kill them. Yet, once again, God's sovereignty intervened and used one of the members of the Sanhedrin to save them, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a Pharisee who enjoyed a good reputation both within the council and more widely. Paul, at the time Saul, sat under him and, and he taught him. That's, how, that's, that's the influence this man had. He addressed the council and told them not to harm the apostles. 
verses 34 through 39, he told only two stories of the other would-be messiahs. Judas and Judas of, of uh, the Galilean, verses 36 and 37, who gained a following for a time, but then they were quickly forgotten. And Gamaliel concluded, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel likely thought that the apostles would fade away just like the other uh, Messianic movements of Phidus and Judas of Galilee. The other members of the Sanhedrin heeded Gamaliel's advice and did not kill the apostles. Now, the apostles, however, were not off the hook. And verse 40 recounts that the Sanhedrin had them beaten, and again charged them not to speak the name of Jesus. The response of the apostles is particularly inspiring and instructive to us. Remember, they had returned from their whipping, yet first they worshiped God. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Verse 41. The second thing, they continued preaching and teaching and evangelizing. Once again, the apostles did not value their own personal security above the Great Commission. Neither should we, saints. Indeed, they even rejoiced when they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the gospel. So should we. And when we, like they, trust in God's sovereignty and genuinely desire to see the kingdom of God advance, we will not resent God's trials in our lives. But we will even learn to rejoice in them. The apostles were living under a realized sense of heavenly things. The love of Christ, a communion with Christ, and the Spirit of Christ. So raised them above all earthly surroundings that what things seemed lost in shame and grief to others were by them counted highest joy. Because they looked at them from the side of God in eternity. Human threats availed nothing with men animated by such a spirit. Nope. Rather, as proofs of the opposition of the evil one, they only quickened their zeal so that every day in the temple and at home, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus as the Christ. How wonderfully life would be transformed for us all if we viewed its changes and its inconveniences, its sorrows and pains as the apostles regarded them. Poverty, disgrace, undeserved loss, suffering, all alike would be transfigured into surpassing glory when we endured for Christ's sake. While our powers of labor and work and our active zeal in the holiest of causes would be quickened because, like the apostles, we were lost. 
fully opposed and were against the one who died for us on a tree, a sinner's death, who were awakened by the Spirit of God and brought us to repentance and faith. And like the apostles, are chosen by God to be His church. Saints, walk and live and labor in love in the presence of the one who is invisible, our bridegroom, the glorious Jesus Christ. Let's pray.